Now we're going to go to God's Word. We're in the book of Revelation. This is week four of Revelation. Coincidentally, sorry, providentially, on a week where we are celebrating what Jesus has done and our worship leader of six years, the topic in our scripture today happens to be on worship. Now last week, Morgan Stevens came down from Mosaic, Austin, our sister church, and preached an amazing message uh, from Revelation 3, a letter to the churches, a message about what Jesus loves and what Jesus hates. I encourage you to go to thespringstx.org and listen to that message. And I ask you to stand to your feet now to honor God's word as we read from the next chapter, Revelation chapter Four. We're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who who was, and he who sat there, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, please add a blessing 
to the reading of your word. A supernatural blessing that overtakes us, that's beyond our consideration. My thoughts, any of our opinions. A blessing, Lord, that goes with you answering the request. I'm asking you, God, that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and hearts to obey you for your kingdom and for our joy. Amen. Amen. I've entitled this message, Access to the Throne Room. Access to the Throne Room. What a mysterious and strange and wonderful scene we just read about. Words cannot describe the indescribable, but John is witnessing this in the Spirit and doing all that he can to describe this indescribable place that peals like thunder from this indescribable person seated on a throne. What a mystery that we have access to. And the fact that we have access is also a great mystery. Romans 16, Paul says, speaks of this secret, this mystery, kept secret for long ages, it says, but now revealed to the saints through faith. And I think secret is a good word here. Because what we're seeing here in Revelation 4 is like something that you have to get secret security clearance to even witness. To have access to the throne room of God is a great gift before it's anything else for us, church. We can take so many things for granted. And God willing today, as we consider what it means to worship God, before anything else, it's a gift to have access to worship him, not as we think he is, but more and more and more as he is. We have access to the throne room of God. This is a great mystery. It's a great mercy. It's an unspeakable gift. Us. Access. We have security clearance to the secrets of the power of the throne. Imagine if President Obama, instead of taking out Osama bin Laden, would have captured him, brought him back to the United States, pardoned him, and then proceeded to give him highest access to our country's secrets and decision-making rooms. Now, if you're an American in here, you've been here for longer than a few days, that idea sounds so absurd. Why would I even use that as an example, right? 
Why would that happen? That couldn't happen. Osama bin Laden, there's no greater enemy. Did you know that before we can become sons and daughters of God, we are God's enemies? We were created to be his offspring, made in his image, but we're fallen from his image. We didn't just do a few boo-boos. We don't just need a little spanking. We've rebelled against a perfect being. And that is an infinite sin. It's infinite. How bad is it? Infinitely bad. It's more difficult to describe what's going on in Revelation 4, or it's just as difficult. Like, what is he seeing? How do you get a picture of these things? It's also just as difficult to describe how far have we really fallen from what we were created for? And how bad really is it when I selfishly slander people that I've been called to love and walk in unforgiveness when they slander me, do things with my eyes and my hands and my feet that serve my flesh and defile the image of God placed in me. How bad is it? Well, let me just tell you, infinitely, but to give a little more weight to that adverb infinitely, it's at least as bad as what Osama bin Laden has done to our nation. Except when God gives us access, his enemies, he gives us access to the throne of God through Jesus living the life that we should have lived in our place. His, his righteousness was a substitute for the righteousness we should have lived. He goes on instead when he was the only person in history to earn access to this throne room by his actions. He merited access to walk through the door and see the unseeable, indescribable like we're seeing here. Jesus is the only one who's ever earned that. By substitution, he gives us that because he not only lived the life we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died in our place. When he died on the cross, it's because a perfect person died for infinitely imperfect people. I don't know how Osama bin Laden would be justly pardoned. It probably wouldn't happen. But what is infinitely unfair is 100% just when Jesus forgives his enemies. That's you and me. It's just because the perfectly just person died for the infinitely imperfect enemies of God to make us sons and daughters. That's why 1 John 3 says, how great and lavish this love is that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And so we are. Are we sons and daughters of God because we call ourselves that? That's what I consider myself. I bought myself a son of God t-shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. No, we're enemies of God by our nature, but we're granted access. And I think this security clearance thing, I won't wear it out too much, but one more thing that makes it appropriate for this context is when we're given this unspeakable gift, like so many things, 
the gift comes with responsibility. Like when Jesus talks about the, the parable of the talents, you've been faithful with much, now I'll put you over cities, right? Think about security clearance. When you have clearance to a secret place, like the president, he has the highest security clearance. What's that clearance for? It's to oversee a great responsibility, right? When you and I are given access to the throne room, it's a great gift. And with a great gift comes great responsibility. And so actually when I see the words used flowing through this text, here's how I want to organize how I teach through this text. There are three things that the gift of access in turn compels us to do. Come up, look in, bow down. Come up, look in, bow down. Firstly, to truly worship and to enjoy the unspeakable gift of access to the throne room, we need to, number one, come up. Let's reread verse one. What an amazing mystery this is. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Let's stop for a second. Close your eyes. Imagine you look and there is a door standing open in heaven. Now based on the sentence structure from verse 1, it would appear that the door is talking. The door is talking. The door, the door is saying, come up. I will show you what must soon take place. You can open your eyes. The door is speaking. The greatest unearned, unmerited gift of God is this invitation and command to come up to him. And you need to know, church, that unless Jesus brings you to himself, to his vantage point, you and I will be like humans, like, like wrung out in the spin cycle of human opinions and perspectives. Unless Jesus shows us, we won't see. He says, come up, I will show you. Unless we come up, unless we receive that gift, that invitation, and walk in it, we won't see as he sees. He needs to show us. He says, come up and I will show you. Jesus is the door standing open in heaven. He says, I am the great sheep gate. No one enters but through me. And he's compelling us. He's calling to us. He's saying, come. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will show you. I will give you rest. Jesus is crying out from the throne. Come up. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth. I am your very life. He's saying, come up out of the haze. 
you're in. Maybe practically come up off of your cell phone and come up into my presence. Come up out of your anxiety, out of your unforgiveness, out of your distraction, worry, fear. And here's another cool thing, contextually. To see Jesus as he is and to feel the feelings, right? He's not saying go back. He's saying come up. If you're like me, in your life you might, like a Christian, in your Christian walk, sometimes feel the need to go back to find the passion for Jesus, right? Like, what did I do? What was I doing when I felt those feelings? And, and, And I felt so close to God, I need to go back. Now, let's be careful because Revelation 2 says you've lost your first love to the church in Laodicea. You've lost your first love. But he's not saying necessarily go back to that. He's saying, I'm right here. I'm your first love. And Jesus is saying right here, you don't have to go back. You don't have to find out like what were the things you were doing to get the vibe that you were feeling. No, he's saying, I'm right here. I was that person that gave you those feelings, that vibe. But I am the one who was and is and who always will be. And I'm saying, even as I'm commanding, even as I'm inviting, come up. We have to step up above our perspective and our worries and our fears. And it's a great gift. We have access and he's saying, come up. Now why? Why are we to come up? It's because Jesus has something to show us. He has something for us to see, something indescribable. Come up. Number two, look in. Look in. In other words, behold. There's so much going on here. And I've asked the Lord to, uh, to give me wisdom with how to manage all the things that are happening in this scene because it's, it's amazing. But we can start with this. With all that's going on here, you can at least, church, know this, that the beauty and the complexity of God is more vibrant than we have eyes to see. In fact, check this out. Verses 6 through 8, there's these living creatures, right? There's, there's eyes like in front and behind. All over them it says there's eyes. And, and it doesn't just stop there. It says they have six wings. And then it says there, there, there's eyes on the outside and inside their wings. What does that mean? I don't know. But I at least know this. That they've been given the capacity to see God more like he is than we see. And if anything for you and for me to come up and and, and gain access to the, the throne room of God and worship him as he is, one hugely important thing that we need to humbly admit and render to our conscience and to God, our understanding is this. We need to see that we don't quite see everything. And there's an amazing peace if you can be, be secure before the Lord. 
that we might not see, but we can, we can know the one who sees. We might not know, but we can know the one who knows why I went through that. Who knows who he is very clearly. We get confused about who he is. We don't know who we are. But he does. These creatures at least have a better vantage point and capacity to see God the way he is. And for us in life, in, in, in worship, in our interactions with the most important things in life, for us to even just render the understanding like, hey, I don't see, that might be the best step toward seeing. I'll give you an example. Like, when I'm arguing with my wife, right? Like, I see what happened or what I said, or what she said, differently than how she saw it, right? Two different perspectives, because she doesn't have the right one, right? And that's what she thinks, but who's right? Do I see rightly and fully, or does she? The answer is neither. Probably, most often, a little more her. But look, we're, we're both not seeing perfectly, we don't see the way God sees. And when I referee fights, I don't get a whistle. I should. Whether it's fights in my family or, or kids or at church, when it, at least we can submit to this. God, you see. Give us wisdom. You're the one who sees what, what went down. And, and we have all our insecurities and defensiveness and all the things just making our sight just not quite there. Our fallenness. And God knows that. And he's still saying, come up and look in. I'm going to show you something. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see dimly as in a mirror, but we will see then face to face. For now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. You need to know that though we don't see perfectly, God does. God knows fully. God sees clearly. In fact, this thing, verse 6, I saw as it were a sea of glass before the throne, like crystal. What is going on here? I think this means that God's sight is clear infinitely clear. There is there's no lack of clarity in how he sees things. And we, if we are his, we can know this. So let's look in closer, acknowledging our inability to see in and of ourselves. Let's look in closer and see what's happening here. Verse 3, I saw one on the throne. First of all, Jesus the door, the voice crying out, come up, is saying, I will show you. And what does he show? In his life or in this moment in Revelation, what does Jesus show so powerfully? He shows us the Father. He shows us the Father as he is. He's not a condemning Father. He's not a hateful Father. He's not, he's not treating you vindictively. Like our cloudy vision leads us to think the Father sees us. He's 
loving and holy and tender and fierce and indescribable, what is he like? He says in verse 3, I saw one seated on the throne like Jasper and Carnelian. I don't know about you, but I don't kind of like process Jasper and Carnelian in my everyday life. I did have to Google image search it. And, and it still wasn't helpful for like, why does God look like that? And I got some help from some other commentaries. We know at least this in the Torah when there was a blessing and an affirmation spoken over the 12 tribes of Israel that the first tribe, Reuben, was, was given the stone Jasper. The last tribe, Benjamin, was given the stone Carnelian. So I think this means that, that God is like the first and the last. We know this from Revelation. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You need to know that God is complete. He is all-sufficient. He is the beginning and the end. He doesn't need us. He's not insecure like I'm insecure. He's not needing to defend himself like I do in my arguments with my wife or my friends. He's complete. He doesn't need our worship. He invites it and commands it. He's complete. And then verse 5 says there's lightning and thunder and peals. I mean, just, just close your eyes for a second and imagine what this would be like. If you saw this for a second, this terrifying, amazing sight, would you be worrying about the things that you were worried about yesterday afternoon? Probably not. You can open your eyes again. It says Jesus shows the Father. Another context clue for how he shows us the Father. He, he bids us up by the power of his voice. And it says, at once I was in the Spirit. Only by the Holy Spirit can we see God. Can we obey God. So no man can ever say, oh, I turned, changed my life around. I got right. God makes us right. He makes us to see him and therefore see others and ourselves the way we truly are through the power of the Holy Spirit. It even says that there were seven spirits around the throne. Now, many believe that this wasn't necessarily seven different spirits, but seven is the number of completion. And this was to represent that the Holy Spirit surrounding the throne, the Father, was there in all his completion. This perfect one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit was there. Now you might say, well, where's the Son? We hear his voice. He's the word of God. He's the door. Jesus also says, I am the light of the world. We know that he is the brilliance that, that, that's better than the sun, that never goes out, that never sets he says, I'm the light of the world. The only reason that, that John was able to see anything was because of the light of Christ. The only reason you will ever be able to make sense of your life is when Jesus shines his light on you. We can only see because of his light. Without light, we don't see what's always been there. And when the light shines on something, it reveals and exposes, and makes manifest what's been there all along. God has always been he is and will always be this mysterious, glorious, amazing being. 
And Jesus comes to shine a light on that and give us access to this amazing brilliance. I love what C.S. Lewis says about Christianity. He says, I love Christianity, and in essence, Jesus, Christ, like I love the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. When I came to know Jesus at 14 years old, I was able to see my life, my sexuality, my, my, my calling in life, what I was supposed to work and earn dollars for, my relationships. I saw them the way they are because he gave me eyes to see him and thus me in this short thing called life that I have and the adventure and joy and exhilaration of it walking with him. Come up, look in. The last thing that we look in and see is a description of God, of of Jesus, of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that is the most precise description of Jesus in human words possible. And we, we, earlier we had a video of what's one word you can describe Tiffany with as we're sending her off, right? What's one word you could describe Jesus? Now, we could say so many things. He's, he's love. John says that in 1 John, God is love. But the most accurate word that Jesus is most of is emphasized infinitely by these four living creatures who cry, holy, holy, holy. Above all else, Jesus is holy. If you don't understand that, then you, like me, will never have an understanding of his love. He isn't Holy love, like only love, like with a W, holy. He's holy love. His holiness describes and, and puts in perspective all his other attributes. Before, before anything else, he is holy. And there's something important about the, the triplet of repeating these three times. There's, there's something called a Hebrew doublet. When you, whenever you repeat something, it, it, it brings overwhelming emphasis. For instance, when Jesus says, truly, Truly I say to you that unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. There's, there's overwhelming emphasis to what Jesus is saying. Well, here in the throne room is the only example that I can think of that we can see of a triplet. God isn't just overwhelmingly holy. He is infinitely, indescribably holy. Come up. Look in, and our only response is finally, bow down. These elders that are described, they have white garments to represent the purity by, by the blood of Jesus that's washed them. The same thing that you and I have access to, to walk in true purity. No man is pure, but we can be purified. They had golden crowns on their heads to represent dignity. Part of me wonders if John, the apostle who saw this, would, would later get any rotations, you know, if, if it functioned with the rotations with his 24. Some people think that the 24 is the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. I don't know. I wonder if John got a rotation. Maybe Mother Teresa. Maybe the, the saints of old who love Jesus in our big time, Right? 
Well, the biggest of the big time find the highest of their highs when they're face down on the ground, rendering worship to Jesus. The greatest thing that God gives us is meant to be surrendered before his throne and given unto him in agreement that you are holy. One last thing I want to point out. Verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne, they bow down, right? Glory, honor, thanks. Verse 11 says, Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. It's like there's a correlation here. But instead of thanks, it says power. There is power in our thanksgiving. Now listen to this. The psalmist says that the voice of the Lord shakes the oaks. And later it says he gives that power to his saints. Later in the psalm. The power that God receives from our thanks is an overwhelming power that spreads and multiplies that we have access to. Power to heal, power to raise the dead, power to lay hands on sick people and see them get well. Power to say things that only someone else would know. Power for me to not say things when I'm not supposed to say anything. Power. And what fuels and stokes this power in the throne room of God? Our thanksgiving. The power of worship is found when we render ourselves empty. We trade our crowns for thanksgiving. And you need to know this, that we can trade our crowns and bow before someone who also traded his crown in heaven to come and live a life we should have lived and face a consequence on the cross. And before he was ripped into his skull, a crown of thorns of mockery so he could be crowned with what we deserve. And he took off his royal robe in heaven and he put on garments of humans, garments that were traded and cast lots for, stripped naked so that we could be clothed forever and ever and ever with his purity. Would you pray with me?